Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every part, heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ while fields and floods, rocks, hills and plains repeat the sounding joy. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, for as the curse is found. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. Now, I love, I love Christmas as much as the next guy, probably even more than the next, next guy. I, I read Joy to the World by Isaac Watts because this psalm, Psalm 98, is the one that he was inspired to write that hymn based, and it is based off of that. Psalm 98. And it's, it's fascinating. In, 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 as we read this, you probably noticed that unlike a lot of the psalms, there, there isn't this same like, God, I'm really struggling kind of expression, and then, but I will trust in you. There isn't this same kind of darkness and light contrast. It's all light, right? There's no, you know, the, the, the author of Psalm 98, there's no looking over his shoulder at an encroaching enemy. There's no condemnation of idols or, or begging God to repent, uh, begging God to forgive our sin. There's no note of injustice either on the part of Israel or with Israel as victim thereof. It is just pure unadulterated joy and, ex and exhilaration. But what's fascinating about that is like, we are almost, I think, as unfamiliar with joy and the nuance and the dimensions and the many facets of joy as we are of, of a faith that can be comfortable with doubt or lament. And so I want to kind of walk us through a little bit this morning, Psalm 98, because if it is this pure, unadulterated joy and, and exhilaration. And yet, if that's all we see this as, then we're going to miss some really hopeful and helpful things. And so let's, let me reread verses 1 through 3, because this describes Israel's witness in the midst of this. It says, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for He has done marvelous things. His right hand and His holy arm have worked salvation for Him the Lord has made known His salvation. He has revealed His righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered His steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Right? This is, is celebratory, but there's kind of two aspects of Israel's witness that the psalmist is, is really highlighting and bookending. The first is the nature of that witness. Right? The, very, the very kind of witness. Like what is it that Israel is witnessing to? And it's, it is a salvation that is... It says in verse 1, marvelous. Marvelous. What, is, what, is, what does it mean by marvelous? It means this witness, this salvation is, is supernatural in that only God, only a creator God, only an all-powerful, most high God could do these things. And it's referring especially, and, and any, anyone who would have read this in the original audience would have understood this to be referring especially to the Exodus and God's rescuing Israel out of oppression and slavery in Egypt with the plagues and the Moses parting the Red Sea and the following the pillar of cloud uh, by day and fire by night. Right? These things are what's referring to. But also in that God's love and faithfulness is so unreasonable. Um, how many of you are Arrested Development fans? Raise your hand. 
Oh, good. I knew my audience well. Okay, keep your hands up. How many of you would raise your hands if you also, if that, in that definition, you excluded the final season? Yeah, okay, a couple more. Yes. You're right about that, by the way. Just let me declare. Um, one of the funniest running jokes in that entire show is George Michael's girlfriend. Um, her name is Anne. Uh, Todd knows right where I'm going on this, okay? Her name is Anne, but uh, George Michael's uh, family often uh, mispronounce her name as Bland. Um, and, and her nickname was Egg, um, which, because she liked eggs. It's weird. It's unremarkable. It's forgettable. In fact, it's so unremarkable, and she is so forgettable. Uh, it shows, like, when she's first introduced in the show, uh, they show her yearbook picture. And underneath her picture, it says in parentheses, not pictured. Like, like the person who's putting that in there didn't notice that there was a picture there. Like, this recurring gag, as Todd alluded to just now, um, is when, when George Michael's like, oh, we, I'll invite Anne to come along with us. And, and his dad's like, who? No matter how many times he meets her, including, like, she's actually in the room with them when he says, let's invite Anne. And he's like, who? He's like, she's right here. Eventually, it goes from who to her, because they remember her, but like, her? Like, really? You, like, she's the one? Her? That's Israel. That's us. That's the church. That's God's people. Her? Really? Like, you, you went through all that, God, to, to... For her? There's simply no reason for God to have what the, the, the word that we translate as steadfast love. That is hesed, and it's a special word in the Old Testament that is only ever used to describe God's affection and commitment to his people. There is, it is an unreasonable love, especially when you consider the slow motion train wreck that is God's people and still is God's people. Right? There's this Old Testament pattern, and, and, and this, by the time this psalm was written, this was very clear to God's people that... that their relationship with God followed a cycle. And this cycle was that God would rescue them from some kind of calamity, either of their choosing or not. And then Israel would very quickly lose their appreciation and forget that God had rescued them. And then they would rebel. Then God would judge them. And then in his judgment would still have mercy and rescue them. So judge, rescue to rebellion to judgment, wash, rinse, repeat. This makes it so clear that the only reason God could possibly love her is because of who he is. And it is not because of anything that we bring to the table. And I mean that both figuratively as well as literally this church. Salvation is marvelous. Not only because of God's supernatural acts, because of his power, but especially because of his supernatural love that is so unreasonable when you consider whom he delights in and loves. The second aspect of Israel's witness we see here is, that, is the scope of that witness, right? In verse 2 it says that he has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. Salvation has been made known actually through that unreasonable love, through God's has said for his people. 
Right? This is, it is not hidden under the, a bushel. It is demonstrated in, word, in deed and proclaimed in word. Last fall, um, as part of uh, paternity leave and trying to slow down, uh, we bought a, an uni pizza oven. Uh, and if you don't know what this is, it's an outdoor, like, little metal, looks like a little spaceship. It's, the design is cool, too, but I geek out about that kind of thing. Um, it makes amazing pizza. Like, it is, w- w- my favorite thing about it is, like, it's really easy to, like, burn it and just torch it completely, but it's also really easy, even easier, to make amazing pizza. And I have, if, you know, we've talked about this at all, you know, I'm, I rave about it, such that for my birthday this year, I also um, got the, um, the prep table that Uni makes, so I'm really excited to put that together this afternoon. Um, but I rave about this thing. It is so fun. Like, it's, it's, it's social. Like, it's a lot of work, yeah, sure, and, and making the dough and, and getting good and fresh ingredients and kind of preparing that. But once you do, and especially if you have somebody over, like, just, like, hanging out and watching the pizza, and it's just this... It's like the ADD uh, dream of like, I'm doing this thing, we're accomplishing something, I'm providing for my family, and we're hanging out and having fun and sipping on whiskey at the same time. It's amazing, right? Now, I'm not going to rave about that with someone that I don't intend to invite over. Because if you rave about something and you're like, this is so amazing, they're going to be like, cool, when am I coming over? And I'm just not going to do that if... If I'm, I'm just not going to rave about that if I'm like, kind of awkward and it would make it really hard to enjoy my whiskey or focus on the pizza oven. And so I want you to know, in case you're wondering, implied is that I am raving in front of you now. You're all very welcome to come try it sometime. If you're listening on the podcast, though, after the fact, I don't know who you are, so that doesn't count. I'm just talking to the people here right now, okay? God's a better, you know, Jesus is a bigger man than I am, and that he would have included the podcast. My, my whole point in, in sharing this is, is that when you rave about something, when you express love and delight in something, there is n- n- at no time when we do this do we not also uh, want and invite implicitly at least others into that delight. And so when we talk about Israel's witness and the unreasonable has said that God has for his people, it is for a purpose that is even bigger than just Israel. God's love for Israel is, is concretely unfolding in history. It's played out on the world stage so that this is God's purpose. This is not an accident or incidental to his love for Israel. The purpose of his love for Israel is so that the nations would see who God is and want in. So that they would go by an uni oven. No. So that they would think to themselves as they're looking in, wow, there is no reason for her to receive that much blessing. There must be a God around here somewhere. He must be good. Because God's saving verdict and Israel's inviting witness are indistinguishable. They are one and the same. There is no point where God expresses or extends love for his people that is not also intended to be an invitation to nation and neighbor to join in that delight. So verses four through nine give the only, like if, if we understand that aspect of, of what is salvation and what Israel is rejoicing over, the only possible response could be that the entire world stops to worship and praise God as well. 
And we see in verses six, sorry, four through nine, all of, all of humanity and creation itself, how, how it would respond if we didn't have sin or the fall obscuring the lens. And, and as if, because as Paul says, we only see through a glass dimly right now. But if we fully saw all of the goodness of God and who he is, as is demonstrated in his righteousness and his salvation, then this is exactly how the entire world would respond. In verses four through six, all human faculties for the nations, their skills, abilities, and instruments reach their highest expression and form in praising God. Even if it's not the originally intended purpose for those instruments, it is they arrive at their fullest expression and highest calling thereof. It's like a, a musical offering that matches the offerings that we see that are brought into the new Jerusalem when, when God returns heaven and earth together, when everything, when God's will on heaven is on earth because they are the same place. And in Revelation 24, sorry, 21 verse 24, it says, by its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Now, this is not saying that the kings of the earth are going to bring their status or their prestige or their renown. The glory here is all of the best of every culture and every cultural artifacts. The best and greatest and most beautiful expression of those things will be brought as an offering of worship to God. Because the best of what we have and what we make and create is made perfect within and because of and through Jesus. All of that is, is bound up in this. And so Psalm 98 reads like the, almost like the, like the veil of time is parted ever so briefly, and history's largest and greatest celebration starts bleeding through. And it invites our joyful noise to become part of the cacophony, the beautiful cacophony. And actually, let me, let me take back what I said. It's not like that. That's actually what's happening. Like when we do this every week on Sunday morning, when we worship, we are actually participating with the saints, past, present, and future. The reason is because our worship is kind of in a sense, it is carried to God through the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit exists both in and outside of time because God is eternal. And therefore, every time we do this, we are celebrating God's Christ's return. Like, like guys, this isn't just showing up to church. This is like... We're partying with literally the nations. So as, I was, so as I'm reading this and I'm writing the things I just said out loud, the, the question that like kind of haunted me and was like, why? Like, I forget this, right? I'm a pastor. It's literally my job to like study God's word and, and I'm not moved to rejoice in the in the fullness and, and uh, the purity that Psalm 98 is describing and demonstrating. Why don't we sing joy to the world? And when I, when I say, why don't we sing joy to the world, I'm not saying, like, why don't we sing joy to the world more often, though I am on board with that. Danny, if you want to you know, work that in more, I'm cool. Um, like Christmas, you're around. Um, what I mean is not the song itself, but why don't we rejoice like that song does? What makes that not as natural as it could or should be, especially with everything I just described? Because yes, like life and circumstances are hard, but I haven't talked to anybody ever who didn't 
uh, agree with me that hardship is often, like when things are hard in life, that's often when you feel closest to God and you are most grateful for his love. It's actually in crisis that man, his grace is often feels most real. So why in the world? I'm pretty convinced that it's because we have a jacked up, truncated, small, tragic view of what salvation even is. Right? If you, in, in Psalm 98, the, the, it's very clear that the psalmist is rejoicing because of God's salvation. It is him, in a sense, but it's, it's even more specific than just God himself. It's also what he has done because God, in his being and in his doing and in his speaking, there is no distinction. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of hit four points of like, why don't we sing joy to the world? Like what is about our definition of salvation is needs correcting from Psalm 98. And then I'll jump into the Q&A. So if you have a text or if you, want, if you have a question, go ahead and get that ready and text that in. The first is this, is salvation, it's not just about you individually. It's not just about us communally, and it's not even just, it's not just about our neighbors, humanly speaking. It's about creation itself, too, right? The, the last three verses, creation is crying out. Now, it doesn't have instruments. It's not like the hills are playing a lyre or a computer. That's probably in the translation somewhere. Um, right? It's not articulate and it's not skilled, but nature is still doing it and celebrating and praising God in the ways that are natural to it. One of my favorite things um, that Deacon is doing right now, uh, he's 10 months old. Um, he's not, you know, he can't speak, put words in, blah. he can't put his thoughts into words yet, obviously. I can't either, apparently. Um, but he started doing this thing about a month ago um, that I call his exorcist impression. Um, and it, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to butcher this. It sounds a little like, <clears throat> wow, <clears throat> like that. Um, I, I sound a lot more like Donald Duck than the exorcist, but <laughs> you get the point, right? And it's like, it's like, what in the world is that sound that is coming from you? And how are you making that sound? And we don't know, but it's a noise and it is do- totally joyful, and he is doing it the best that he is able to in his capacities. And, and it's, the best part is like when you try to do it with him, he just lights up. And he's beaming. And, the, and it becomes this kind of like compounding, growing uh, thing that's just it's awesome. And I forget that it sounds just like The Exorcist. And that's what's, that's what's happening here, Right? But even, even just like kind of understanding like what's going on there, why? Like if, okay, if we, understand, uh, if we understand salvation to be like about humanity even, like why in the world is creation celebrating that God is, has said toward his people? Like why would creation care? It's because it's bound up in us. And if you, I mean, like, I don't, the, the good thing about, you know, planting the table and being a part of a church in Boulder County is, like, I don't have to convince anybody that, like, humanity has an effect on creation and, and nature, right? But it's, this is a theological statement, right? In Romans 8, Paul says that, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. That's us. For the creation was subjected to futility, 
not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Creation is caught up in us and with us. And so when God is faithful, has said to his people, creation reaps the reward too. And it even uses the same language. Paul uses the same language for creation that he uses for man. In verse 22, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we await eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. If you're not rejoicing, if that's difficult, maybe it's because you forgot that apart from God's has said, everything is lost otherwise. That there is no redemption of the universe and of creation. There is no all things being made, all sad things being made untrue. The second reason, I think, or way that I think uh, we, we have a jacked view of salvation is that salvation is actually a lot more than fire insurance, right? It's a lot more than Jesus died for your sins so you could go to heaven instead of hell. That is true. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm saying that when we read verse 2 and it says that he has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations, it's that righteousness is not just the forgiveness of people for what they have done wrong. That word righteousness means putting right what is wrong in a holistic and comprehensive way. In other words, shalom. Shalom is a theme throughout all of Scripture from beginning to end. And shalom, I can think of no better definition of shalom than my, one of my all-time favorite quotes from Cornelius Plantinga, great hipster baby name. Um, it says, he says this, In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. A rich state of affairs in which the natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed. A state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. While reading about Isaac Watts writing Joy to the World as an and, and being inspired by Psalm 98, I was stunned, and I did not know this, that apparently there are churches that currently exist that want to skip over verse 3 because talking about as far as the curse is found and, well, I'm going to just read, uh, no more let sins and sorrows grow nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far is the curse is found because that sounds like too much of a Debbie Downer. I'm like, are you kidding me? That's my favorite verse. As far as the curse is found, the curse is everywhere, guys. That means it's all going to be applied, have applied to it God's righteousness, his shalom, his flourishing. God, that's so much more exciting. Like, my, my pulse is quickening when I think about that more than the, like, great, I, you know, I don't have to go to hell now. God, what a, what a small vision and a non-biblical vision. So if you're not rejoicing, maybe if you're not singing joy to the world, maybe it's because you've heard a small gospel. 
Maybe it's because you were wrongly told that the gospel is only a get-out-of-jail-free card. Or maybe you know better than that, but your focus is still more on what you are saved from instead of what you are saved unto. Maybe, and I get this, oh man, do I get this, maybe we, we end up spending a hundred times as much time on the brokenness and the things wrong with the world than the promise that God has given us that it, His righteousness will be applied to it, that His shalom will pervade every square inch and nothing will be untouched by His redemption and renewal. I mean, okay, I don't, I don't want to project. I'm just saying that's what I need more of. Number three out of four. <sighs> Salvation is also not your doing, Right? The Old Testament pattern I was talking about earlier of rescue, rebellion, judgment, rescue, rebellion, judgment. The whole point of how much the Old Testament especially, but all of Scripture has that cycle on repeat is because God knows how creative and at the same time slow to learn we are that we could think to ourselves, well, what about this? Maybe I can save myself this way. Maybe I'm more worthy of, of God's love and has said for this reason. And sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but you can't save yourself. It's actually really good news, but it may be hard. And, and maybe you don't think that like explicitly, but there are ways and aspects in our hearts where we functionally believe that even if we're not explicitly proclaiming it, right? And in Psalm 98... It gives us the good news that in, in verse 1, his right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. In other words, this is like kind of a Hebrew uh, way of saying he did it single-handedly. You know, there's a lot of things that God needs our help with, and like he chooses to use us in the same way that like I kind of need my son Ransom's help, um, you know, putting the chairs back in order, and by that I mean it's like not helpful, but he still enjoys it, and I enjoy involving him in it. And, and I love to like, use him to do that because he gets so much delight in it. Like, there are many aspects of our love for neighbor that, that God lets us help him with and invites us to. Salvation ain't one of them. It's only and holy, forever, always, completely and utterly his doing. And thank God, because we find helping God, we find ways to mess up helping God all the time. kind of implied in this too, like I just want to, you might, again, you might not be thinking to yourself or saying out loud that this is what I, I think, I, I think I'm saving myself or I'm contributing to my own salvation. I also want to like encourage you that if this morning you maybe feel far from God or you're worried that like, okay, maybe, the, maybe his love and his, his head doesn't apply to me because I haven't felt him near very much lately and maybe for a while. I want to encourage you that not even how you feel about him determines or contributes or takes away from your salvation. That if it is holy and, other, holy and only and fully his doing, it is his right hand that has done it, then even how you feel can't get in his way. That's really good news. Verse 3 says that he remembers us. He cannot forget us he cannot forget to extend his chesed to us for any more than he can forget who he is. That's impossible. 
So if you're not rejoicing, if you're not singing joy to the world, maybe it's because you think your salvation is actually on your shoulders. Maybe it's because you, thought, you forgot that you're Anne. And that's good news. The last way I think we, we, we have a jacked view of salvation is, is we forget that salvation is actually entrusted to us. And this is what I was kind of hinting at just a minute ago. That we, like God's plan A for the world is the church. He uses us. It is still his doing. It's still his right hand and his right arm that accomplishes it. But he, in his love and his grace, involves us, much like I involve my son setting up chairs. And we are the least likely, least naturally good option available. If you're here, that's, that's, that's why you're here, right? Her? I love that even in, in the Old Testament, um, God tells his people, I didn't choose Israel when, when oppressed and enslaved in Egypt because it was the, most, uh, the biggest and most powerful nation or had the best military. I mean, the irony of that is like, no, no kidding, they were literally enslaved. He's, he's making a hyperbolic point here that like, my calling you to be my people and to live as my people is precisely and especially in order to demonstrate and highlight my hesed, my grace. And so your weakness, your fear, your failure, your difficulty, your lack of motivation, your total exhaustion, guess what? That's actually not disqualifiers. That's prerequisites for how God has entrusted us for, for his salvation to go throughout the world. If you don't believe me, it's explicit. Like Jesus actually says this and paraphrases and references Psalm 98 among others. In verse 3, it says that all the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of God. And then in Acts chapter 1, he sa- Jesus says to his disciples, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, still God doing it, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. It even repeats it in Acts 13 that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Did you notice how Psalm 98 follows a similar kind of concentric circle pattern? That first, that the source of the joy is in Israel in verses 1 through 3, then the nations outside of that in verses 4 through 6, and then outside of that creation itself cries out and prays to God. It's all part of the plan. And so if you're not singing joy to the world, it may be because you forgot that if, God, if God's unreasonable love for you is because of who he is and not what you do, then it can't be limited to you either. It must be intentioned originally for nation and neighbor. And God delights then to use our weaknesses and our slow motion train wreck of a church to reach them, to love them, and to, to, to demonstrate his unreasonable, unfathomable, steadfast love and kindness. Another way of saying this is if we worship without witness, we're not actually worshiping God, we're, we're, we're worshiping something else. We're worshiping ourselves. And to be honest, if we're worshiping ourselves, I don't, I don't make me want to rejoice either. But that's not who God is. God is so different. So here's what this all adds up to. And then we'll do some Q&A. All the New Testament, and also the church, since the New Testament was written, 
all apply, including Isaac Watts, saw Jesus as the salvation celebrated in Psalm 98. It's not just God's acts. It is because God is so inextricably tied in his being to his acts, to his behavior, and to his deeds in the world that he came into the world as one of us to receive the justice that we deserve for all of our failures and all of our sins. And yet at the same time, it is through that very person that he uses to effect his salvation and ours. It's even in his name. Jesus means the Lord is salvation. That is who he works his salvation through. That is why we celebrate. That is why we worship. It's the joy to the world. Okay, let me, we have a few. By the way, I know it sounds like I don't like getting texts and questions when I just, with that tone. I love this. This is great. I'm also a little bit nervous because I never know. Okay. With so much pain and sorrow around us, how do we express joy in ways that draw our neighbors in rather than appearing to be calloused or unaware? This is a very good question. Okay, let me read that again. With so much pain and sorrow around us, how do we express joy in ways that draw our neighbors in rather than appearing to be calloused or unaware? I would say two things. One, when there is so much pain and sorrow around us, the fact, if, if the joy that we are expressing is not just us bootstrapping and kind of faking it, if it is genuine, that's strange. And it's of God. And so I, as, as long as that rejoicing is genuine, then I, I would say you have nothing to worry about. That's not going to come off as callous. The other thing I would say is, and, and this is why we're doing entire books of the psalm, like, all, like spending a lot of time in the psalms, is because there, next to psalms of joy, there are psalms of lament. And it is impossible to express in a genuine and authentic way the joy that, I, as I was just describing, if we don't recognize the world, the circumstances, and the brokenness and everything that, that, that you're referring to. It's because we can recognize those things and still rejoice that actually points to God and not our circumstances as the source of our joy. That's how people will think to themselves, there must be a God around here somewhere. By the way, that takes practice. We're bad at both joy and lament. Like, what? <laughs> we got stoicism down. Um, okay. Love this message today, thank you, but it also makes my heart ache over neighbors, friends, and family who do not know Jesus and how I struggle to point them to him. How do we better remember these truths when we feel swallowed up in the culture and in living like people around us do? Whew. Really good question. I, in fact, I, I would say that like, since Deacon's been born, this is the thing I wrestle most with. Right? I was just telling uh, somebody before the service that about my pizza oven and how like, I really need to figure out a way to make this easier to do so that I can extend hospitality to my neighbors because I haven't done a great job of that and even as much as I want to since Deacon's been born. It's just like hard um, with a second kid, especially their respective ages. And, and, and the, so I'm right there with you, um, I want to say first. The second thing is like, pray. Pray for that. Pray that God would deliver and give you some options to bring to mind some things, to give you opportunities with your neighbor, and also maybe tell your neighbor that. <laughs> I know that sounds kind of bold, 
Um, but I've, I've, to- I've absolutely told uh, a couple of my neighbors, hey, you know, this is weird, and I don't, you know, you've probably wondered if, as a pastor, like, I have an agenda, and I just want to relieve you of the concern and tell you that the answer to that question is yes. <laughs> um, but, like, I'm not the one that executes it. That, like, that's something that I believe only God can do, and, like, it's actually through my idiocy that he has said that he's going to do that. And so, um, I love you, man. If you ever want to talk about it, please let me know. We'll do it. So, it's, it's actually probably really refreshing to their neighbors who, like, are like, I appreciate that honesty. <laughs> There's no subterfuge there. One more question. Right, if you affirm an eternal heaven and hell... How do you also affirm the importance of the salvation restoration of people and creation in the present world, given that in the light of eternity, the history of humanity spans a diminutive blip in time? Uh, okay, let me read that again, mostly because I feel like there's a lot here. If you affirm an eternal heaven and hell, how do you also affirm the importance of the salvation slash restoration of people and creation in the present world, given that in the light of eternity, the history of humanity spans a diminutive blip in time. Okay, if I understand, because I'm not sure if I understand your question, um, I think what you're saying is, okay, if that's like an end of time thing, how do we celebrate now knowing that like we're talking about one small speck in the, in the, the perspective of thousands of years and billions of people? If I understand that rightly... I would just say that that makes God's has said only more incredible. It means that his pursuit of his people is relentless, not over decades or even centuries, but millennia, and that that spans cultures and circumstances and time and place in ways that I don't have a brain big enough to fathom. And that at the same time that he is looking at and focused on his love expressed to humanity throughout the eons, he is also actually concerned with me. That's beautiful. And that actually softens my heart. So if that is not what you're asking, let me know. I'm I'm happy to keep engaging. But um, let me pray as we transition to communion. Jesus, your love and your grace are bigger than we have words to describe our hearts to behold. And yet we get these glimpses of your care, of your providence, of your, of your, of your arranging and sovereignly orchestrating things to have a redemptive outcome in ways that we can't even understand and also in ways that maybe we won't get to see in our lifetime. Or it's so easy to get stuck into the minutia of every day and lose sight of that cosmic vision, that cosmic, huge, unreasonable good news. But Lord, we thank you that even that does not stop you in your, your steadfast love and faithfulness. So we pray these things, Lord, and all, all in your name. Amen.